Hi again. Here's the second of two interviews I recorded at Motive, the crime and mystery festival put on by the Toronto International Festival of Authors. I spoke this time with South African novelist Dion Mayer about The Dark Flood, his latest in the Benny Kriesel series of mystery novels. My name is Nathan Maharaj. I'm director of content marketing and the producer of the Kobo and Conversation podcast for Rakuten Kobo. I am so pleased to be welcoming you to this very special chat with novelist Dion Mayer as part of Motive, Toronto's Crime and Mystery Festival. Dion Mayer, as I'm sure you know, is the internationally published author of more than a dozen novels, several short story collections, screenplays for TV series and feature films. He's probably best known to you all as the writer of the Benny Kriesel detective novels. The latest in the series is called The Dark Flood, in which Benny and his friend Vaughn Cupido have fallen on hard times, professionally speaking, and they find themselves working as warrant officers, which is a long way from the elite Hawks unit they normally work in. And yet, trouble still finds Detective Greasel, as it always does. Dion Mayer, welcome to Motive, the Crime and Mystery Festival. Thank you, Nathan. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be on the show. And I am so uh, impressed by your pronunciation of the character names. How did you do that? Well, let me tell you something. My family, the Maharajas, are from Durban. Uh, I, I have an aunt and cousin who uh, lived in Cape Town for quite some time as well after living here in Canada. So, so we're, we're getting a little, we're, 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 I'm doing as, as, as good a local as I can for you. Um, I have oh, opinions on the, on the representation of the Samusas in the book. I have, there's, a, there's a vision I have that not, that not everyone else has because a proper South African Samosa is tight and hard. It can be implemented as a weapon. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, yeah, that's how I come by the uh, the the, uh, the proper pronunciation. That and a bit of YouTube. Um, speaking of pronunciation, uh, I was hoping we could hear from you a uh, short reading of of the novel. Sure, I'd love to. Um, I'm going to read a couple of pages from the very beginning of the book, uh, and here goes. He abandoned the dossier on his desk, grabbed his Z88 from the drawer, and ran. Vuzi was small of stature, the quiet one always calm, but not now. The urgency in his voice meant Chrysal did not hesitate. He fastened his holster around his hips as he ran down the passage. Vaughn Cupido was approaching, long coat flapping behind him, in his bat suit, his winter gear. Praise the Lord, said Cupido. Vaughn hated the tedium of police paperwork. They had been buried in dossiers for days. This was a reprieve. Captains Frankie for London and Moy Willem Liebenberg emerged from their shared office, shoes drumming on the bare-tiled floor of the Directorate of Priority Crime Investigation, the DPCI, in Belleville, a herd stampeding to the armory on the first floor. Ndabeni was already inside, passing out R5 assault rifles and spare magazines, warrant officer Bossy Bossert scribbling hurried notes in his inventory. I want a stompy, said Cupido. Vuzi gave him the short Beretta RS-200 shotgun with a pistol grip and a cartridge belt. You've always got to be otherwise, eh, said Philander. It's a cash in transit heist, not a bank robbery. Method in my madness, uncle, said Cupido. You just wait and see. Just bring them back, Bossert shouted after them. 
After morning parade over the previous five months, they had been kept informed of Vusi's investigation. He had been working on the flurry of in-transit heists in the Western Cape. The same gang, the same modus operandi, ten men in four stolen cars would ambush the transit van. One vehicle, always old and heavy, would be deliberately rammed into the security van, forcing it to a standstill. The other cars would encircle it and open fire with, according to post-action ballistic tests, AK-47s and a collection of exotic collection of small arms. Until the guards surrendered, or the explosives would be used on the rear doors if they would not, an estimated 14 million rand had already been stolen. The robbers were phantoms. They left no solid forensic evidence behind. Ndabeni was at his wit's end and under extreme pressure from his commanding officer, Colonel Mbali Kaleni. So now the five detectives raced off at 150 kilometers per hour in two unmarked cars, the BMW X3 leading and the Ford Everest behind, to the N1 first, then heading east. That's wonderful. Um, I want to ask you to start, just tell me about Benny in this book. He's been with you a long time. He's, he is, he is kind of a, you know, your companion. And, and, uh, I want to just kind of ask you, he's doing okay in this book. He seems to be starting out all right. You know, sobriety seems to be sticking. Can you talk a bit about your vision for him in, in the dark flood? Yeah. You know, one of the, the difficult things of writing a series is, uh, to keep the characters fresh, to keep pace with the life phases that the characters go through. If you don't do that, then the characters stagnate, they become exactly the same in every book. So I've always tried to make my characters, specifically uh, Benny Griesel and Vaughn Cupido, sort of grow with their phases in their lives. Uh, Benny, since uh, Devil's Peak, which was his first protagonist role, uh, had gotten divorced. He's fallen in love again. He's now living with the love of his life, uh, Alexa Barnard. Uh, and they are, they've they got engaged and now, now the, the wedding is ahead. So he's got these new personal challenges, but then there's also the alcoholism. Um, I When I created him, he was a much lesser character. And this is many years ago in uh, Dead Before Dying. Uh, I created a character on the fly for a very specific role, turned him into a drunk cop because he needed to be drunk for the scene. When I loved writing about him so much that I wanted to use him as a protagonist, which happened in Devil's Peak, and then I had the the very interesting challenge of trying to do something different with an alcoholic cop, which is a bit of a cliche in the genre. Mm-hmm. So I've always tried to be as honest as real and real about his alcoholism as I can. Uh, in in the South African Police Service, if uh, policemen and women suffer from PTSD as Benny does, then they usually get treatment, they can speak to a shrink, and those who stick to it slowly but surely recuperate. And I've tried to do that with Benny. Um, Also because so many readers kept sending me emails saying, please don't let Benny fall off the wagon again, because they feel a lot of compassion with him. And you know, I, and I, I share that, you know, you can only put your characters through so much in every book. And if you keep on doing the same thing it becomes boring so i've tried to keep pace and yes there's uh there's definitely in benny's personal life things are looking up he's slowly but surely conquering the alcoholism or at least coming to terms with it and and, and staying on the wagon uh and he's also become i think a lighter character he used he used to be especially when 
Uh, he was divorced and drinking a lot. Uh, he was a bit depressive, but I think Benny has, has lit up a lot, thanks to Vaughan Cupido, his partner as well. And my vision for him for this book was to really make him uh, less serious and more playful uh, and make the whole book a little bit lighter and more entertaining. Yeah, I mean, and to that to that point, you um, you remove uh, Benny and Vaughn from the the uh, the high pressure elite hawks, um, and and it's uh, and they're warrant officers. They're they're strolling about essentially, you know, all but tethered to a desk, you know, doing paperwork and and walking around. Um, uh, and you move them also, uh, interestingly, uh, you move them location wise. I'm going to ask you about that in a sec, but. Um, uh, first, give us a sense of the Hawks. What what is what? Because that's an important frame to be leaving behind. Yeah, the Hawks is a is a one of the big elite units in the South African Police Service. If you look at the history of the police in South Africa, uh, there's always been these uh, elite squads. Um, so when I started writing ninety four ninety five, um, the Serious and Violent Crimes Unit was called uh, Murder and Robbery Squad, and you have a separate squad for, for drug uh, investigation, you had a separate uh, squad for economic crimes. Um, and then, I think about 10, 12 years ago, uh, the police structure changed and it, they decided to bring all the elite units under the umbrella of the Directorate for Priority Crime Investigations. And within the DPCI, there are these various units, the serious and violent crimes, that's where Benny and Vaughan used to work. And then you have crimes against the state, you have economic crimes, uh, and you have uh, organized crime investigation unit. And it's really the best of the best, the elite detectors who get drawn into uh, the Hawks. And especially for Vaughan Cupido, this was a matter of huge pride for him. Um, he is a good cop, but he also knows that he's a good cop and he sort of believes that he's a good cop and he can be a little bit arrogant at times but it's it's his great pride and joy to be part of the hawks and because of what transpired in my previous novel uh, the last hunt uh, they both uh, get uh, disciplined and they get kicked out of the hawks and they have to go back to an ordinary police station now that's the other uh, level of structure in the South African police service is that in, in every fairly big town in South Africa, you have a police station with a detective unit and then the uniformed uh, people who are separate. And uh, Benny and Vaughan, uh, they are very worried they're going to get sent to a very small town in the Karua called Langsburg. And uh, Vaughan says that that's purgatory, you know, that's that's the, the, the biggest, the worst it can get. But luckily, uh, they get sent to Stellenbosch, which is a different kettle of fish. It is a different ke kettle of fish, and it's a kettle of fish you know well. Um, it's it's it was I thought it was really interesting that you that you sent them as punishment, um, you know, to your backyard. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, if I don't want to uh, give any spoilers, but there's there's a reason why they get sent to Stellenbosch, which comes out later in the book. But they are also usually relieved. They they believe that uh, uh, Colonel Mbali Kaleni, the, the Hawks uh, commanding officer, uh, enabled this, uh, and they are very grateful to her uh, for doing that. But yeah, I mean, Stellenbosch is a much more cushy job than Langsburg. Stellenbosch is the second oldest sort of colonial town in South Africa. 
it is uh, the most beautiful town in South Africa. It's got a beautiful history. It's got great architecture. It sort of nestles in the mountains. It's in the smack in the middle of the wine country of the the, 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 the wine area in the Western Cape. Uh, a lot of history. There's a huge university here. Uh, the town's got a you know this vibrancy about it. All these young people. So it's and one of the reasons why I brought them here was because I. Mariana and I, my wife and I moved here 11, 12 years ago, uh, and uh, we've grown to, to love this place. We, we absolutely adore Stellenbosch. It's, it's a wonderful place to live. And when you really love something and you grow passionate about it, then you want to sort of share that passion. And that was one of the ideas that I had was to, to write about Stellenbosch, but not my view of Stellenbosch, Benny and Vaughan's view, and, and also the other characters sprinkled throughout the, the novel. And Vaughan's view of Stellenbosch is very different to Benny's and to my own, uh, and it's a very interesting view. And, you know, that's one of the great things of writing, is that you can see the world, see the environment, see South Africa, or see Stellenbosch through the eyes of your different characters. And it, I f often feel enriched by that. I, and I wanted to ask you about representation of place because, um, I mean, as, as we as we mentioned off the top, um, I have roots in South Africa. I have I, I, um, I haven't been, but I have some representation of that through family and those family stories. Um, and uh, and what I loved about this book was just was being there and the specificity. Like it's not it's not another you know another book set in you know Johannesburg and we're getting big urban life. We're like, well, no, the, the city is there, but it's it's over there. And we're we're here, and this is a little different. And the traffic sucks, um, but you know, day to day life is okay, um, except for you know, alarming violent crimes. But what, we're reading detective novels here, so there have to be con conceits exactly. to genre. Right? In lovely exactly. places, bad stuff happens. That's why it's interesting. Right. Um, I wanted to ask though, if you're conscious of, as an internationally published writer, as a writer who, I mean, you know, from the jump, you're writing in Afrikaans, you know, you're you're. Your, your books are on a voyage of, of adaptation uh, to different audiences from the moment you're, you finish the manuscript. Um, and I wanted to ask how you conceive of that, that burden of representation, or if it feels like a burden, knowing that maybe a writer, uh, maybe a reader will read only one book even set in South Africa, even in Sub-Saharan Africa, maybe in a year, in, in three years, do you do you, how do you how do you view that do you does it does it have anything to do with the writing or do you just have to do your thing nathan that's that's a great question uh with a complicated answer um when i when my books were being translated for the first time and i started doing international events in the northern hemisphere um we were at a point in south africa's post-apartheid history where tourism had become our greatest source of foreign currency. It was also the industry in South Africa that created the most jobs, especially for the unemployed and, and, and the impoverished. So I saw it as one of the small contributions I could make to the rebuilding of our country to really go out and promote South Africa as a tourist destination, mm -hmm. because it is probably the most fabulous tourist destination in the world. And also, one of the most inexpensive because of the exchange rate. Um, and I kept running into this dichotomy of writing crime fiction, uh, you know, about the dark underbelly of a society, but in the same breath trying to promote South Africa. But I, and I really struggled with that 
how, how do I manage that? And then I realized that crime fiction readers are intelligent people and they know that whether they're reading a Michael Conley that's set in LA and it's all about crime, that's not what LA is all about. Or, you know, a book set anywhere in the world. And people do have the intelligence to realize that this this is just a small window into a much bigger society. But I've also tried to to show people who read the book um, a little bit about the other side of South Africa, the wonderful people, the the diversity in terms of, of ethnicity and culture and landscapes, etc., etc. But eventually, you've got to uh, knuckle down and write the story. And I think if you can make the characters human and the story interesting, uh, then people will be fascinated by it anyway. Uh, the other interesting thing is that as, as writers from Africa, we are always up against the prejudices of people from the Northern Hemisphere when they think, think about Africa. Um, it's much harder for African authors to, to make breakthroughs internationally because there's, there's a certain view, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, that Africa is not a place where you go to find entertainment uh, and a fun read, that it's going to be dark, it's going to be about disease or poverty or, or violence or whatever the case may be. But you've got to keep you've got to keep that out of your head and just try and write as good a crime fiction story as you can and believe that, that readers have the intelligence to distinguish between crime fiction and the real world. Well, so on the subject of, of narrative craft, this book drops us uh, on page one with uh, the the reading you gave is is grab grabbing guns at hand to to go intercept um, some bad guys uh, uh, in 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 flight. Um, it's it's a it's a gripping intro and it's kind of a ski jump because we 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 fly off of it and it's and it's even in the table of contents it's July and then we skip ahead and then it's and then and then we're September and there's this gap and there's uh, and it's uh, and it's it sort of sends the whole novel spinning. Can you tell me a little bit about writing that intro and and how you conceive of bringing the reader in and setting that momentum? I knew when I started the book, and I, I had the story broadly in my head, I knew that setting up the the real meat of the story, the sort of the Stella Bosch part of the story, was going to take a bit of time. And uh, it's it's not it's not going to be a, a quick fix to do that. Hmm. But if I write a first couple of chapters that, that really has incredible pace and, and suspense and tension, then hopefully the reader would think, well, if, if it starts like this, then there'll be more of this if I if I read through those first chapters of the Stellenbosch part. So that was really a little bit of a planned part for me. Um, and I also, the, you know, the, there's a tie-in between that first section and the firearms used that becomes relevant later in the book. Mm -hmm. So I could tie those things together. But it was so much fun to write that first part. Uh, I think it's the first time that I've actually, because detectives usually don't go out on that sort of action fold. You know, yeah. they, they detect, they go to a murder scene, they look for clues, and then they start the legwork. Uh, so it was a lot of fun to write it. And uh, I had so much fun that I, I I wanted as an author wanted to come back to that sort of setup later in the book, which which I of course did. But it was it was really uh, a lot of fun to write. Yeah, I mean it was it was fun to read, and like exactly as you say, detectives, detectives, det detecting is is a craft of the past tense, 
And this, yes. this these opening chapters are intensely present tense. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're not going to do any spoilers. So that's that's right. anybody who's worried about, oh my God, these guys are about to dive into no, we're not diving too deep into plot. <laughs> um we get uh we get this interesting view of corruption. And I think you you alluded to this, of course, because uh co- because sort of touching that third rail of corruption is kind of what 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 Benny and Vaughn get burned from is is they they they're a little too good at their jobs, maybe. Yeah. Um but rather than staying in that sort of police force area, we get into a really interesting aspect of it, which is, you know, if a if a if a country is 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 twisted enough economically, then things like the real estate market won't work. They won't work right. Um, and so we get this character, Sandra Steenberg, who's who's a hardworking real estate agent, very irregular income, but the bills are very regular. And, and we get this sense of peril that I thought was actually a really interesting thing. Because for me, I was thinking, I know Benny and Vaughn are going to be fine. They can, they can handle themselves. But there is a looming threat over Sandra. And she is, uh, she is having to give it her all to, to make her family finances come together, not lose the house, not divulge you know, the, all the, the, the final notices spilling out in front of her husband. Um, can you tell me a little bit about writing Sandra and setting up that 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 kind of a threat yeah you know the, it's the old adage of um conflict is the mother of suspense mm. um so that's the one thing that i wanted to do i wanted to give sandra so many sources of conflict to build up the suspense of is she going to be able to manage what she's doing she's as you said single breadwinner her husband is an author he's taking time off to write a book uh and she's trying to keep everything together but the real estate market is is shot um and then she's she gets offered this huge opportunity to make a very very big commission but uh there's a uh, there's a twist in this uh, in that what she has to sell, she has to sell for this corporate fraudster uh, and is a sex pest too. So, you know, it, it, it makes it really difficult for her. Um, the, so the, the one part was really to create conflict. Uh, the other part is to motivate her actions later in the book. I needed to set that up from the start. I needed for the reader to root for her and when she does certain things that the reader would say, I'm with you, I, I understand why you're doing this. Uh, so those were the two things that I had to juggle, that I had to balance, that I had to try to get right uh, in terms of Sandra Steinberg. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's a hugely relatable situation she's in because it's very like, it's, it's like meat and potatoes, uh, adult problems um, that everyone is either either faced or you know, we'll, we'll spend some time every day making sure they're not facing it. Uh, so it's, it's one of those threats that's, that's, that's always there. It, um, she also has that twist. So you mentioned this, this, um, this client, this problematic client of hers, um, is, is one of many men in her life for whom, uh, is an irritant to her. We get this view. I thought it was really interesting. We, we, we were seeing through Sandra's eyes, for most of the book. We actually don't have a great view of her, but we do hear, we keep hearing these men saying things about her, um, which is, uh, which was this whole other aspect of kind of uh, 
kind of a low level bubbling threat out at the periphery that her, even her boss, who's allegedly on her side, refers to as Longoria, even though I looked into it, Eva Longoria, the actress who he's referring to, has no record as a real estate agent. Is is, is <laughs> it, it is not, there is not a direct compliment to her professional acuity here. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I wrote the book sort of midway through the, the Me Too movement and all the revelations from Hollywood uh, moguls who were, uh, you know, these sex pests. And it really got me thinking about what women have to go through every day by men who just don't think what they're saying or are just mm -hmm. stupid. Uh, and how that constant attack on, on women, how that must make them feel. And I try to uh, put myself through that and ask what, how, 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 what would this do to a character? How would she react? How would how would that make her feel? Uh, and again, as I said earlier, you know, seeing that through the eyes of a character can be very enriching. It, it teaches you a lot. Um, but of course, part of that too is to set up uh, Sandra's character and also motivation for certain things that she does. The client of hers, uh, Jasper Bonestra, uh, he's based on a real life figure. Can you tell me about? Can you tell? Can you tell me about this sort of? Is it maybe a satire? Like what? What you were working at here in 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 this uh, character? Well, he he's he's based on on several real life people, not just one. I mean, there is a very famous South African corporate fraudster, uh, and a very big corporate fraud case in South Africa, probably the biggest in our history, uh, happened in Stellenbosch. So there, a lot of readers would think that uh, Jasper Bundstra, the, the local in the book, is is based on this guy. And I mean, yes, he inspired him, but he's not based on him at all. I I never knew the guy, so but I I had a look. Uh, in South Africa, we've had uh, a few very important, big, prominent figures who got into corruption. So I think there's a little bit of all of them. And then also, as I said, some of these Hollywood uh, film moguls um, that were very much in the news, I, I borrowed from them uh, substantially as well. So there's not just one uh, person that uh, he is based on. Hmm. Um, so you've been... I want to ask about kind of you've been writing Benny for for a while now. It's coming up on I guess it's eighteen years. I mean, conventionally that's long enough to you know raise a child and then they're ready to move out. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to ask, you know, are are you uh, do you see sending Benny off to do anything? Uh, you know, to to go maybe go uh, forge his own thing and maybe you move on to to spending your time somewhere else. Maybe the market does need another bass player. Like maybe he has underestimated <laughs> the need for bass players. Right. <laughs> well, you know, you never know. I've, I've always maintained that if I find a story that needs totally different and new characters, I will write that and, and create them as I've done with fever. And I, to a certain extent with trackers and, and, uh, uh, dead at daybreak. Um, it's, it's been a strange journey. When I started writing, I did not want to write a series uh, for two reasons. The one was because I felt that story comes first. You've got to find a story that excites you as an author that you really think is worth telling, that excites you, that, that you know gets you passionate and gets you going. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a marathon. To write a novel is a marathon. So you, you better have enough juice to, to get through it. Uh, 
and so not character shouldn't come first, but story should come first. The second thing was that I I was very unsure whether I had it in me to find stories for the same character over and over again and keep that interesting, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you're a, a newbie writer, a young writer, you don't know what you can do. And you, I mean, I didn't, I really didn't think I could, I would be able to do that. And then with Benny finding a favor from, from uh, readers and uh, from publishers, the pressure started coming, you know, write more Benny novels because people seem to like, I uh, love this character. And then, Lo and behold, you start finding stories that fit Benny because um, you like writing about him, readers like reading about them, publishers like publishing books uh, in a series. And it sort of conspires to make you do the series and, and do book after book. But again, you know, if I think I have a, a great story uh, that doesn't fit Benny, then, then I'm quite happy to go there. The interesting thing for me, and I remember I had conversations with Michael Conley and Ian Rankin some years ago mm. where about this thing of aging your character uh, in real-term years. Uh, and that made Bosch and Rankin's Rabus having to retire. Uh, and I, I was very happy that I didn't do that. I sort of didn't let Benny age. I think in the last uh, 16 years, Benny has aged two years. Um, and no, no reader has ever commented on, on it they seem to like Benny in his 40s struggling with it. So his life progress has been much slower than real time and more in terms of book by book. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that keeps him fresh. That gives him more legs, I think, to, to keep on going. Uh, we'll have to see one of the things that will definitely influence where Benny and Vaughan will be going is what happens politically in South Africa, what happens in terms of the police force in South Africa, because I always want them to, you know, be the good guys and uh, keep fighting the good fight. So that's the one thing that might influence it, but I'm very positive. I, we've got a wonderful president now who's making big changes and, and getting things back on track. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm just hoping that Benny and Vaughan can get back into the Hawks. Uh, <laughs> they want to get back there too. Uh, so no, I'll I'll keep writing about them. Whether they'll eventually get back to the Hawks, we'll have to see. I have certain other ideas at the moment. Oh, brilliant! I mean, even if things go badly, like it's it's that's the wonderful thing about detective novels, right? Is is it's is it it's the world it's the world as it is. It's not as we necessarily want it to be. Yes. And so, if things go utterly sideways, well, we follow Detective Creasel through a yeah. sideways spinning world. Right, right. I mean, I, I did that. Machu Bear was the protagonist in uh, Dead Before Dying, and he he became a PI, private investigator. Uh, so there's always that option. Although Vaughn Kipilo would hate to do that, he he really looks down on private detectives. He thinks it's a cop out. Uh, pardon the pun. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I doubt whether they'll go that route, but it is an option to look at maybe a, a way out in future if if all else fails right i mean so okay so speaking of writing other things you you have written for the screen um and you've you've you know worked as you know producer director so i i wanted to ask about this multimedia kind of um experience that you have and yet writing writing not just genre fiction but writing a uh, writing a series writing a character that you return to time and again do you do you think about 
do you think about cinema? Do you think about screen when you're writing, thinking about making your, you know, can I make the job of selling the, of, uh, the option easier for myself here? <laughs> or, or does it have to just be a great novel? No, I, you know, it's, it's hard enough to make a novel work. Hmm. And I think if you start thinking and worrying about is this, will this translate to the screen, you're going to be totally lost. I think that's a very slippery slope. I, when I write a novel, I focus totally on the novel. Novel structure is so different. The whole approach to novel writing is so different to writing a screenplay that you, you can't not focus and concentrate on that. So I don't think about that at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, you know, I mean, just just for instance, if you write a screenplay, especially in the South African context, then budget is one of the biggest issues. You can't create a scene uh, where you have, a, let's say, a football stadium filled with 80,000 people. But in a novel, you can do whatever you want. And that's why when I write a novel, I go ahead and I write scenes that I know will be impossible to film as is because it's going to be just too expensive. And there's a certain pleasure in in, in that freedom that you in a novel you can do that. Yeah. Uh, while in a screenplay, it's it's totally different. Right. And I mean, and movies are a. I mean, nothing happens in a movie without buy-in of a dozen people. Um, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> You know, and usually there's a broadcaster involved, so you get a lot of feedback, uh, a lot of notes that you have to, and a lot of rewrites, and then the director takes your uh, uh, screenplay and he or she does what they want with it. Uh, but you, I've, my my experience is though that when you when a screenplay gets made. All these levels of creativity from the director, from the camera people, from the lighting people, from the sound people, uh, the actors. I mean, actors, I've learned to respect their craft so much. They they give life to characters that you created that is beyond your wildest imagination. And then there's the editor and the music. You know, it's 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 a it's a much more of a collaborative effort. It's a lot of creativity coming together and creating something that is much bigger and better than it was in your head. Yeah. Yeah, uh, quite quite unlike the loneliness of the novelist who has ultimate power. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is also scary because you know you can't blame anyone else if it's a failure. <laughs> yeah, you, there's, it, it's it's not the cinematographer's fault in the novel if it didn't if the scene didn't work right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you you've mentioned a few other novelists as we've been talking, and uh, Ian Rankin uh, and his Inspector Rebus and uh, and Bosch from from Michael Connolly's novels. Uh, these are, of course, detective novels, and some of the some of the best going right now. Um, what do you read for fun? What's what's on your nightstand? I read both Connolly and and uh, uh, Ian Rankin. Uh, you know, I read all the uh, Lee Child. I mean, uh, mm. Lee Child um, has always been a great favorite. But I must admit that, especially when I'm writing, I read very little fiction. Mm. Um, I I read nonfiction. I love reading biographies. I write. I read about the economy and politics and and history. I love reading history. So I would say eighty percent of my reading is nonfiction simply because I find it very hard, especially when I'm writing, and for the past few years I've always been writing, mm. uh, I find it very intrusive. It's very hard for me to to read fiction without reading it like a writer. You know, you, you're so used to, uh, as a writer, to read what you're writing and to assess and to try and f find fault with it so that you can improve. 
that it's hard to switch that part off when I'm reading fiction. So I save the Connollys and the Rankins and the uh, uh, and the Lee Childs and, and all the other great uh, crime fiction authors. But when I take a holiday after I finish the book, it's usually two or three months that I just read fiction before I start a new book. Mm. And yet, and yet, I, I, I was delighted uh, as I was reading uh, this book, and, and, I, and you, 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 I think you've been doing this forever, is peppering in little, like if someone wants to get familiar with the literature of South Africa, uh, they need only just pay attention in reading your book because there are little, there are little pieces. Um, uh, Sandra Steenberg's husband, who is taking this time to write his novel, uh, is a scholar of uh, Ivan Vladislavich. Um, yes. And, and, uh, the surname Kutseya just sort of floats around in right. So it's uh, is is that is it uh, so is that is that just a game or is that a little bit of the uh, is that a little bit of the sort of South African Board of Tourism agenda that you that you alluded no, to? No, it's, <laughs> it's part of the agenda. No, I mean I'm so proud. I mean we've South South African won the Booker Prize. Uh, we've got J.M. Kutseya. Ivan Vladislavich is just so incredibly good a writer and there's a little bit of bragging you know i yeah. i can say i'm i'm a south african writer too i'm not as good as these guys but you know i'm, <laughs> I'm part i'm part of this uh I, I i'm so proud of them yeah um you you've um in, in interviews i read uh that you 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 got a case of covid um and you experienced the brain fog which i think is probably like this one of the scariest things that 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 people hear about with COVID. I mean, other than like mortality is the idea of like carrying on yeah. with cognitive disability. Can you kind of describe that a little bit? What was that like? Um, as a writer, you're reaching for, for familiar yeah. things. What, what was, what was it like? Nathan, it, it was very weird because my wife and I caught COVID before COVID was really big in South Africa and we didn't know we had COVID. We oh, weren't, yeah. I mean, I, I was, you know, I had fever and the terrible headaches and the tiredness. And uh, it was like a very, very, very bad flu. My symptoms weren't as bad, but we didn't know that it was COVID mm. until uh, several months after the lockdown. And I finally went to the doctor for an annual checkup and I described my symptoms and he said, you had COVID. But the um, the brain fog we I had we had a sort of had COVID and then a month and a half later we went into lockdown, and for me the lockdown was a godsend because suddenly my diary was open and I could really knuckle down and write the dark flood. Uh, otherwise, I would have really battled to finish it in that year. And having all this time and then sitting down and realizing, one of the the great things I've always prided myself on and I've always enjoyed as an author is my powers of concentration. I can sit down and really get my mind into the book and live in that world and and write for two or three or four hours until I realize that I'm so stiff from sitting down now that I need to get up. But, you know, I, I'm in there and I'm writing. And for the first time in my life, I couldn't write for more than 10 or 15 minutes and really with great effort trying to concentrate. I, just, I could get into this world and then uh, I couldn't concentrate anymore, and I would. So I, I wrote the first half of that book in little twenty-minute uh, uh, bursts, mm. and then I would go away and come back and, and write again. And it slowly got better. It um, every day it got a little bit better, and I think after about six or seven months, I was back to normal. Uh, and then Marianne and I got COVID again um, early this year. 
and I went through the same thing, but luckily this time it cleared up uh, much quicker. The first time around, we I didn't lose my sense of smell and taste. Mm. Second time around, I lost it all. It's only starting to come back now. Got um, well, we're we're. Uh... I'm glad to see you in good health now, and I'm glad yeah, the novel, the novel, <laughs> good and I'm glad the novel turned out so brilliantly too, despite oh, uh, that adversity. Um, we're at time, uh, Dion Mayer. I want to thank you so much for this wonderful chat. Thank you, Nathan. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. We'll be back soon with more new episodes of Kobo in Conversation. In the meantime. Check out Dion Mayer's books, especially the latest one, The Dark Flood. And you don't need to know the rest of the series to enjoy this one. Uh, it was my intro too, and it was great. This episode contains audio from the Toronto International Festival of Authors and was produced by me, Nathan Maharaj. Thank you for listening.